This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we'll be discussing some ideas on how design and development can be done in an environmental way while meeting our demands without compromising the environmental future. That's part of the idea for the annual Sustainable Energy and Design Conference happening at Bronx Community College, October 16th and 17th. Today I'm joined by four experts knowledgeable about the conference. So let's go around the table and have everyone introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Mark Kupkovic. I'm the Vice President of Security and Operations at the New York Botanical Garden. I've been uh, participating in sustainable projects at the New York Botanical Garden for over 20 years. Hi, I'm Greg Bruce. Uh, I'm from the city of Townsville. I'm executive manager of our Integrated Sustainability Services Department. And uh, we look after integrating resilience and sustainability uh, to an energy, water, and nature. Hi, Aaron Sosha. I'm the director of the Center for Sustainable Energy at the Bronx Community College and an assistant professor of chemistry there. We've been running this, uh, this is the second annual Sustainable Energy and Design Conference, and I've been in charge of running it and selecting the panelists and the topics. And joining us by phone, Jonathan, introduce yourself, please. Yeah, hi, I'm Jonathan Trent. I work for NASA Ames Research Center, um, although I'm not here as a representative of NASA. I'm also a professor at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and I've been working on a sustainability project um, for Spaceship Earth, if you will. Um, it's, a, it's an attempt at finding a path forward towards sustainable fuels, sustainable food, and clean water. And I want to get into um, individual projects, but first let's get a little bit more broad. So, Aaron, what's the focus of this year's conference? Sure, Robin. So t this year we have a two-day conference. It's October 16th and October 17th, and the focus of the first day is very much the, the grassroots agenda. We'll start off with the first panel on sustainability without borders, and we're going to talk about how we can implement some of the ideas of the developed world onto the clean slate of some of the developing countries in terms of their infrastructure in places like China and India. On the second panel of the first day, we're going to be talking about urban design and infrastructure, so ways that um, the public institutions have uh, succeeded and failed in designing projects to integrate uh, renewable energy and waste management and building efficiency. On the second day of the conference, we'll move into discussions on laboratory research and how we can bridge those uh, small uh, bench scale projects with um, ways to bring that research to market. And we'll then talk about some successful businesses revolving around solar energy and uh, replacement building products that are made from renewable materials and also speak with someone who runs an incubator in New York City. What are some of the top sustainability challenges that New York City has? Uh, I could speak to that. Uh, Mark Kupkovic, I'm from the Botanical Garden. Uh, because of my long tenure at the Garden, I've been working with the uh, Department of Energy Management with uh, DCAS at the City of New York. And uh, they've been uh, giving us uh, sound uh, advice and uh, giving us uh, financial backing to do projects uh, since the early 90s. So at the City of New York level, uh, there's not just a Department of Energy, it's a Department of Energy Management where their chief concern is uh, the environment. And uh, after the chief concern of environment, it's carbon, carbon reduction and uh, to continue uh, developing programs to uh, show uh, that the city is the leader in uh, sustainability uh, and not just uh, passing laws and mandating it, but leading by example. 
And Greg, you've worked on developing smarter cities projects, correct? Could you explain a little about what that is? That's correct. Um, we have collect data uh, in, a, in a pilot IBM uh, trial for smart water. And basically, uh, to give it a, a metaphor, it resolved uh, the complex relationship problems that emerge in homes about who's using water where. So it, it settled family disputes that have been long held for 10 or 20 years around family tables mm -hmm. about obviously uh, the young ladies in the family <laughs> were in the shower longer than they were telling the, the parents. <laughs> so it's the visualization of the pattern of your water use in your own home. And how is this helping us environmentally as a culture? Well, I, let me jump in for a second just to um, Go ahead, Aaron. draw another example. So that's exactly how Vibrio cholera uh, was first discovered in London. So there were all of these cholera outbreaks in London, and I believe the mid-1800s, I'm not sure the year, but um, what they did was they took and plotted on a map where all the cholera outbreaks were coming from because at this point no one had known where cholera comes from, whether it comes from food or whether it comes from the air, um, and they were able to show that all of the, the outbreaks were occurring near the wells and all of the um, bacteria, therefore, were coming out of the water and all they needed to do was filter the water and because the bacterial cells were large enough that they were able to remove the cholera by simple filtration like you would make coffee. So it has real tactical use to this theory and data. That's right. Um, in terms of, uh, we often have, uh, similar to what Aaron's talking about there, it's the hidden world. So the hidden world of water leaks. Water leaks are huge. They're often under the building. We can't see them. But the moment you gather the data from what's happening um, with the water and then visualize it back either to the operation center of your water utility or into the person's own home, then basically that person immediately sees their own water leak and is, is more likely to act. Jonathan, you're working on a project that deals with water in a totally different way. I just came back from Australia and the project developed over the last six years. I was basically like a life support system. You know, when NASA tries to put people in space, um, it's a pretty threatening environment. There's not only no food and water, but there's no air to breathe and incredibly threatening to human life and safety. And so in order to put people there, you have to envision a very complete life support system, or at least it's called a life support system, which sort of translates into finding everything you need. And it sort of sets the bar for um, what it would mean to preserve things because getting stuff into space is an expensive proposition. So people are extremely parsimonious with materials. I mean, really carefully using everything that's there. And the concept of waste kind of goes away. But anyway, I took those concepts and I applied them to trying to solve initially the energy crisis by seeing if we could figure out how to make a liquid fuel out of something that we could grow on a waste product. In this case, it was the wastewater from our coastal cities, which is pumped offshore. So we designed an offshore system that floats in seawater, but it's a freshwater community of the fastest-growing plants on the planet, which turn out to be single-celled microalgae. And these microalgae produce huge amounts of oil. In fact, they're the source of most of the fossil oil that we currently harvest from the deep earth, from microalgae that lived a few hundred million years ago. But anyway, so the project then, once we started to explore how these algae could treat wastewater 
and produce biofuels um, blossomed into a project that included recycling the water using technology that NASA has developed. Recycling that water is drinking water by cleaning it really rigorously in a very inexpensive way. And um, combined it with aquaculture, um, because we're offshore, which meant we could contribute to not only energy, but also uh, local food and clean water availability. So that's the project. It's called OMEGA. It stands for Offshore Membrane Enclosures for Growing Algae. Jonathan, why did you have to go to Australia to get this done? Why not here in the States? When I was trying to get stuff done in the United States, as if I was confronting really long permitting processes that would take maybe five to ten years to get permission to even try to build an offshore system. And other countries around the world are, are much faster to adopt new technologies than the U.S., I'm sorry to say. Well, that's why you're on the Sustainability Without Borders panel, Jonathan. <laughs> well, good. That's the right place. There is no border for sustainability at this point. We're, we're confronting global problems, Aaron. That's pretty clear. And not only a question of the climate change as being a global problem, but also the limited resources on our planet that are being distributed sort of inequitably right now. So there are major issues, and clearly they... They go way beyond the anachronism of national borders. Well, I think that's why I'm here today with Aaron in the uh, Centre for Sustainable Energy in the Bronx Community College is because worldwide we're recognising that it's collectively together, no matter where you're from, the parochialism of the past is, is gone. This is the first time I understand in the planet's history that every human being who's connected to the internet can instantaneously be connected with every other living human being on the planet. So we're living in a different age. And from the point of view of um, we can't all figure it out on our own. So we've come here to collaborate as the Bronx Community College and Aaron have been to Townsville. And, you know, for me, it was a privilege to be involved in the Sustainable Energy and Design Conference last year. And they got an absolutely tremendous program this year and I think it's the the level of thinking that has gone into the program from being able to uh, integrate across the multiplicity of design and sustainability involvement technology changes and and also drilling down to the business incubator Aaron it's just remarkable stuff This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon discussing the annual Sustainable Energy and Design Conference. It's happening at Bronx Community College on October 16th and 17th. The New York Botanical Garden has been for over 125 years been studying the uh, plant kingdom in South America and you know probably worldwide and has gathered information and we've collectively stored it in the herbarium at the New York Botanical Garden where we have over seven million plant specimens to be studied. Uh, we have uh, approximately 50 PhD uh, employees that are at the garden that are uh, working in economic botany uh, where they're helping uh, people grow and preserve food sources around the world in systematic botany and actually uh, identifying the different kind of plant species and what's, uh, what's uh, still available and what we need to protect and uh, putting them into the herbarium and long-term storage. And also, we're doing DNA and genomics research. Not only are we a beautiful place in the Bronx, not only are we are the neighbor of Fordham University, 
but we're also this wonderful scientific and educational place. And actually, that's where I met Aaron uh, through the uh, Botanical Garden because he actually uh, was uh, a member of the Botanical Garden team uh, during his uh, graduate years, and he knows all about uh, what's happening there. So uh, we, that's, these are things that we share. So we have a worldwide interest, we have a local interest, and we live in the macrocosm and we develop macrocosmic concepts. And we also have the microcosm of making sure that our 250 acres across the street is uh, as uh, sustainable as possible. And Jonathan, did you want to say something? There's been this, um, sort of historically, there's been this attitude that we need to build structures that last forever. When, in fact, the problem is that not only structures don't last forever, but they tend to become obsolete with time. And so there's been sort of a new way of thinking about how to build things, not so much cradle to grave, but cradle to cradle. That is, trying to envision how we could build things that when you're finished using them for whatever intended purpose they had, you can now figure out that they could be used for something as a secondary use that would be as valuable or even more valuable. A case in point in New York, of course, is that the warehouses became apartments, which then became galleries, which was never their intended purpose. But that kind of repurposing is an important feature of how we set out to design. In our case, we wanted to design what are called bioreactors, ways of growing algae out of pretty inexpensive plastic that's used for greenhouses. But these plastic tubes that we designed, which are used for growing algae, would last about a year or maybe two years. So we wanted to be sure that we're going to be using all this plastic. It's going to be floating in the ocean. A, we don't want to add any more plastic to the ocean. We already have way too much garbage plastic in the ocean. But B, when we're going to use this plastic, and it's no longer appropriate for algae growth for whatever reason, what is the new purpose? What can we use it for? So we designed into the system a use for the plastic where it would become what's called plastic mulch, which is a way of spreading plastic on, on the soil just after planting to prevent evaporation and prolong you know, the effects of watering and also preventing weeds and preventing pests and so on. So sort of monitoring what's going on with it with city infrastructure and using that to make wise decisions is part of the equation. But also in building, we need to start thinking really wisely about how to build structures that we recognize won't be appropriate 20 years from now, possibly even 10 years from now, but build them in a way that they're either easy to dismantle or can be used again for some future purpose or the materials can be recycled in a really straightforward way without going to great expense to be able to recycle materials. I think that's part of the sustainable thinking that we, are, I'm sure, are going to be discussing at the upcoming conference. The Sustainable Energy and Design Conference is coming up the 16th and 17th of next week. What can we expect, Aaron? Some of the, the key talks to, to highlight here, the talk by Mitchell Joaquin uh, will talk about uh, colorful, water-repellent, and high-tensile strength building materials. And there's... A what does that mean? Yeah, so he's producing um, replacements for sheetrock and for um, tabletops and for uh, foams for chairs and whatnot, and how, in traditional sense, these materials would come from uh, crude oil that had been fractionated to the point where it could then be polymerized and made into a, 
um, and made into a material for building and uh, with the exception of maybe sheetrock but a lot of the a lot of the, the materials that would go into an automobile the seat cushions and the, the dashboard and the steering wheel uh, would 20 years ago no one would conceivably think about making these materials from renewable sources such as plant mass and now since we know that we can grow a, a plant in very short amount of time as opposed to drill for oil and pipe the oil around the country and around the world uh, we're looking to farms and uh, our own backyards for materials to to make uh, other types of structures out of that's interesting to me i never thought in terms of taking a plant and turning it into something other than a salad um how exactly does that work well the plant is composed primarily of three different materials and they're almost in equal ratios so about a third of the plant would be uh cellulose and cellulose is a polymer of glucose and glucose can be the the food for a microorganism that can then ferment that glucose into a useful material. The useful material could be something like a, a beer or a wine, or it could be the starting material for making a plastic. So doing genetic manipulation on the bacteria, you're able to tune how the products are uh, produced by that bacteria. Uh, the other two-thirds of the plant also have uses, um, albeit not fermentation, but uh, they can be used in bulk applications, such as uh, blending with asphalt or putting into uh, animal feed. And these are ways that we can take a plant, uh, break it into an, its individual components, and then use uh, the fermentable part of that component to make designer materials, if you will, and then use the uh, more recalcitrant substances to make into uh, more structural materials. Is this expensive? Robin, I think, yes, you know, what Aaron just described was something really important, and that is the realization that waste is a verb. In other words, if you're not, if you're not um, using something as a resource and you're considering it a waste as a noun, then you're really wasting it as a verb, right? I mean, and that's the realization that we came in came upon when we started doing life support to try to populate other planets or space. But it's the reality of what the Omega Project really looked at. So building, building an infrastructure on, in an environment that's, that's really not being utilized um, very effectively. But more importantly, taking advantage of all the different resources that are there. And so this concept of building an ecology, if you will, right? I mean, in a, in, a, in a natural system, an ecology, there is no waste in an ecological system. This, this, the materials are cycled through different components of the system and ultimately contribute to the infrastructure of that system. And so we're, in designing the Omega system, we were thinking of an ecology of technologies that were really wedded to the environment in which we were going to embed them. And I think that's, I think that's sort of the foundation for sustainable thinking. And I think that's what really Aaron was talking about when he was trying to dismantle all the different components of the plant. We, we now have the knowledge to be able to do that. The issue is whether we have the will, because we certainly know how to do these things. And now it's an issue, a question of whether our society is going to 
step up to the plate given the limitations that we're starting to confront with the old way of doing things. Well, I could I could add a little something here because uh, uh, the Botanical Garden is, uh, we're embarking on two new projects at the garden. One is called the uh, Green Zone, where we are uh, building uh, a large infrastructure of about 12 acres of recycled materials. So we have, uh, we're creating these uh, recycling zones uh, where we can uh, build compostable bins where we can actually gather, we can grind, and we can build these mounds, and we can circulate them through a whole compostable stage and take all of the waste product and turn it into usable uh, uh, compost, uh, which we we take uh, plant material and tree material and leaves, and uh, we actually take the leaves from Fordham University and add it to that. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, while we're doing that, we're also uh, detaining water so it doesn't rush into the Bronx River, and we also spin it uh, and we, with hydrodynamic separators. And then, uh, so, and then we're also building the Edible Academy where we're using uh, compostable restrooms with a, uh, uh, it's called Clevis Multrum. It's a Scandinavian product where it's uh, compostable restrooms, and we're going to build two compostable restrooms. And when we went to the uh, uh, DEP in New York City to ask them permission to do it, the commissioner, uh, I was at the meeting, the commissioner said, I think, uh, based on what I just heard, every restroom in the parks department should be a compostable restroom. You're going to have to break this down for me, Mark. How would it work? And so you're going to go to a regular restroom, just like you would go to any restroom. And then uh, instead of flushing the toilet, you will hit a button and will, a small spray will go, which will be just like a, a mist of water, just to kind of move the uh, product along. And then it will go and fall onto a bed of wood chips. And that wood chips will be, uh, there was a, a company that's experts at this, and uh, they will come in uh, every, or maybe on a weekly basis, they will stir uh, the, the product with the wood chips. And a, as it uh, starts to uh, process there, there's van, uh, fans and vents and things that will remove whatever is odorous. And uh, then after a certain amount of time, it will come and be gathered, and the new fresh wood chips will be put into that place. And so then the company that they, takes it, they take it off, uh, premises to a uh, different location, and then uh, they use it uh, to create uh, organic fertilizers and things of that nature. If you were known for accomplishing just one sustainable energy slash design historic accomplishment, what would you want it to be and why? And I'm well, going to ask each of you. My, my um, emphasis from my career has been this project called Omega. Um, you know, there was a famous uh, founder of OPEC named Sheikh Yamani who was asked um, about what's going to happen with the end of oil. And he said that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. And the Oil Age isn't going to end because we're going to run out of oil and coal. But the Oil Age or the fossil fuel age is going to end because we've found better, more sustainable technologies that are going to replace the technology that we're mining right now and that we're using up at an enormous rate and with terrible consequences for the environment. And we have technologies that will replace the fossil oil. Um, they're not competitive right now, but we have the ingenuity to make them work. And now the issue is whether we have the will. But in terms of what my legacy project will be, it's certainly the Omega Project, which is not just about energy, it's about an attempt at creating an ecology of technologies where it's truly an ecology where the waste product from one part of the system become resources for another part of the system. And using that vision of 
eliminating waste within the system is really the legacy that I'd like to leave. Greg? Uh, well, the legacy I'd like to leave is uh, Townsville City is known as the blue hub of sustainability, uh, where we took the yellow out of the green because we're no longer afraid to act. Uh, we've integrated technology with people and the way um, the human brain actually works. I always share with people, if um, please learn about the human brain. It's important. If you don't want to learn about the human brain, learn about cognitive uh technology and cognitive science because it's mirroring the human brain and that's built upon patterns of relationships and that's what blue hub and blue buildings are blue sustainability is where you make it affordable practical implementable it's holistic it's ecological system based and it's healthier to live in like having a white roof as an ecosystem based thing it cools the solar panels on the roof it stabilizes the temperature, makes a longer, um, your air conditioning units last longer, your infrastructure even helps to keep the roof on if you've got a um, wooden batten roof that uh, it stabilizes the moisture and temperature in the wood, makes it stronger. So holistic, system-based approaches. So that's what I would like to be remembered for and connecting with the Bronx and the privilege to be here. And thanks, Aaron, and thanks, uh to uh, Robin and uh, the other panelists today, Jonathan and Mark. Uh, the thing I'd like to be remembered for is uh, my participation at the New York Botanical Garden in the uh, programming and the design and construction of the Edible Academy. It's a new project that we're working on where we're combining solar energy, green roofs, geothermal. Uh, it's a, a complete in, uh, uh, educational facility for uh, children of all ages where we're teaching people how to grow vegetables, how to prepare and cook vegetables, how to eat vegetables, and then when we're all finished with it, how to com compost vegetables and vegetable matter. And that's what I would like to uh, uh, be known for. And last, the director of the Center for Sustainable Energy and Fordham 01 graduate, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Uh, I have fond memories of Fordham 01 um, and the years preceding it. I, I would like everyone, I, I would like to consider this a formal invitation for everyone to come to the conference. It's October 16th and 17th. It starts early, 8.30 a.m. and runs until 4 p.m. Um, I encourage you to register on our website, www.cse, as in Center for Sustainable Energy, BCC, as in Bronx Community College, org, and you'll find the information on how to register as a student or as a participant on there. The um, legacy I hope to leave uh, is, is this. So I'm a, a fuel chemist and um, I like to say that if you can make a fuel uh, sustainably, you can make anything. And also if you can do some, some great sustainability work in the Bronx, uh, you can do it anywhere because the Bronx is the second uh, most impoverished city in the country. And uh, there's something like 31% of people living below the poverty line. And if we can design spaces and activities uh, that will uh, withstand the test of time or uh, the current test, then uh, we can do it in other places like Manhattan and Seattle and San Francisco where there are many more resources. So um, I encourage you to come October 16th and 17th and, and see what we have to say. 
in the Bronx. You know, you know, Robin, I think the reason people would really want to come to this conference is that people are really, really nervous about what the future has in store for everyone, especially their children. And I think it's this from what I've gathered, Aaron's put together a conference that people will really be excited to see that there's not only talk fests going on globally about, oh my, oh my, hand-wringing, we have to do something, but that there's a lot of people who actually have projects already underway that have really good trajectories. And I think it's going to be really valuable for people to come to such a conference and sort of see that there's a there's hope for the future, that they're really our ingenuity, which got us into the predicament that we're in right now, may also be able to get us out of it. So it's a bit more from Australia saying it's more like a conference of uh, wisdom and generative and constructive sustainability, figuring it out. As we say, we like to pick up the American Wright brothers learning to fly at Kitty Hawk my understanding is they took a thousand attempts and they trialed every part and they wind, they tested it in wind tunnels and they tried new parts and they kept trying new parts and they kept putting it together and no one knew how to fly. So this conference for me, Aaron, is a bit like sustainable energy bringing in design is figuring out how to get sustainability off the ground like they did at Kitty Hawk. I want to thank my guest, Jonathan Trent, Mark Kupkovic, Greg Bruce, and Aaron Sosha. I'd also like to thank my producer, Megan Connor. The annual Sustainable Energy and Design Conference happens at Bronx Community College Thursday, October 16th and Friday, October 17th. You can find out more at our website, wfuv.org slash Fordham Conversations. Stay with us. WFUV Cityscape is next with George Bodarkey. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.